Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Coronavirus is the story in the world that has reshaped the way that humans live, and that is not an exaggeration. But now there's a raging debate about who's to blame for it. Even just a few weeks in, the Trump administration has started calling it the China virus, owing to the fact that the virus originated in China, and the Chinese government has pushed back on that unsurprisingly. Our question today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, is the extent to which it's fair or even potentially racist to call it the China virus based on what we know about China's response, and how we think about the broader conflict between the United States and China over the fallout of this virus that is really, truly reshaping our lives. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. How are you doing? Hello, everybody. We're here again at our home podcast studios. This is the second time that we've all tried to do this remote thing, so if it sounds weird, if we're off, just, you know, bear with us here. We're trying. We're trying our best. I hope you all are doing well in self-isolation and quarantine and that those of you who have to work through this, that you're staying safe and that you're not getting infected. But this is not just an issue of personal hygiene or even government response. Right now, what we have is also an issue of geopolitics, of what it's like for different countries to grapple with the political ramifications of this virus that originated in Wuhan, China coming to ravage the entire planet. So the Trump administration's approach has been to, you know, in addition to whatever else they're doing, use the language of China virus. And now I want to state up front that I think that much of the purpose of doing that is to stigmatize not just the Chinese government or, you know, to blame the Chinese policy response, but to target and, and redeflect blame onto Chinese people. I don't know if the Trump administration is intentionally like we want Chinese Americans to feel bad, but that is clearly the effect based on testimonies from Chinese Americans, I find the idea that we should use some kind of specialized term rather than, let's say, coronavirus, the term that everybody uses, one that seems to clearly be intended to stoke xenophobia and international blame, even if the Chinese government deserves a significant amount of responsibility for it. So to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, here's a clip from President Trump's press conference on Wednesday, where he was questioned by a reporter about the use of this term, China virus. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why comes from China. I want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Yeah. So you can hear there, you know, Trump 
flat out just says, because it's from China. And he says it in his way that Zach always loves to mock with China. China. But he then goes on to say something that I think is actually important in trying to understand why Trump has decided to do this. And I come down in a little bit different spot than Zach does on this. Trump goes on to say that he's essentially doing this, yes, because it came from China, but also because they, meaning the Chinese government, had recently started to try to float this conspiracy theory uh, that has been circulating online as well. But senior members of the Chinese government have have weighed in and, and floated this theory that the U.S. military actually started this, uh, basically released it to take down China, released it when they were in Wuhan on, a, on an exercise or a, a trip there. Um, and so Trump is saying, you know, in that clip that essentially in response to that, that he is now, and his administration as well, are now calling it the Chinese virus to essentially push back against that. So, you know, this is pretty well documented that Beijing has been trying to push this. They've been doing it through internet trolls. They've been doing it, you know, through coordinated social media, doing it with senior government officials. They've been doing it in official and semi-official state media. Um, you could see tweets from the Global Times that push this narrative over and over again. That essentially... What's the Global Times, Jen? Global Times is a Chinese government-affiliated newspaper in China that's in English that you can read on Twitter and on the internet, but it's an English-language publication. So you can see this pretty much everywhere across Chinese media, social media, and in official government statements of them trying to push this narrative that maybe it started in the U.S. There's this other part where they're saying maybe it didn't even originate in, in Wuhan. They are playing this clip from one of these Trump administration officials was testifying before Congress about the, the virus, saying how Americans who had originally, they thought they had the flu, were actually testing positive for the coronavirus, for the COVID-19 disease. And so they're saying this, look, what if it actually started in America? We're just the ones who first reported it. So I think that's really important to understand is that, you know, a lot of this very explicitly is Trump and his administration, you can hear this, especially with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, pushing back on that narrative of China trying to say that it was the U.S. that started this or trying to deflect blame from their own government. Yeah, I think that it's certainly the case that there's a, an attempt to engage in some kind of like information warfare here. I also think that this administration is playing domestic politics, like, and I think that that is in, in many ways inarguable and that the term, I think a lot of people are fairly, like if you talk to people in the Asian American community about the way that this kind of, this term makes them feel about the stigma that they've experienced since the disease came out and the fact that the Trump administration when it comes to dealing with crises has basically two moves denial or externalizing the blame specifically to domestic political enemies or minorities and immigrants and this really follows the second category right like it would be one thing to be arguing that China is responsible for the coronavirus. And I think, and that that's really what I want to talk about, right, is the ways in which I think it's very accurate and correct to say the Chinese government bears the blame. And there are also ways that it doesn't, and people have overstated the case, but it's largely correct to say that. But it's another thing to use a term that seems to play into the fact that, for example, early in the crisis, there was a complete collapse in business for Chinese restaurants in the United States. And the reason for that is that people were blaming Chinese Americans and treating them as being inherently dirty or disease carrying, which is very common. I mean, historically, it's not as common as you might think that disease uh, divides people amongst themselves. I read an interesting paper about this recently, 
turns out that there that most of our stereotypes about this come from the Black Death, which is actually atypical. Setting that aside, it is possible, as the Black Death shows in medieval Europe, for diseases to turn into justifications for scapegoating minorities. And I think that that is something that this administration is not only insensitive to, but actively primed to <laughs> to push. Yeah, Zach. So I think I think two things here are, are true, and I don't think they're actually necessarily in conflict. Um, I think you know one is what I said, which is that a lot of this has to do with geopolitics and with you know the Trump administration trying to fight back against China, who is very explicitly documented trying to push this narrative and trying to you know, divert blame from itself for for the fact that it completely mishandled, you know, the first initial outbreak um, and is partly why it spread so rapidly and is now an issue that the whole world is dealing with. Now, again, you know, you can't prove, you know, it's hard to prove, prove the negative, right? We don't know if they had handled it perfectly well. It still could have gotten out, right? We don't know that. But I think that can can be true and also can be true that it is still racist, right? That the term itself is causing people to see Chinese Americans or Chinese travelers or even people who are not even Chinese, but who maybe look vaguely Asian, according to the person who's standing there shouting at them, um, you know, causing very serious, you know, xenophobic, bigoted, racist reactions. And I do think it's also the case that the Trump administration may very well see a, a domestic benefit to this. I think it is kind of morphed, honestly, from this original like knee-jerk reaction pushed back directly against the Chinese government to becoming also useful, right? In in its own, in the Trump administration's own, you know, effort to deflect blame back. You have seen Trump call it, you know, the the foreign virus before he started calling it the Chinese virus. You've seen, you know, the the travel bans on the Europeans. It's very easy to deflect blame and try to, you know, otherize this, right? And I think that's still true, I, even if it started as geopolitics and even if that's the initial kind of thrust for this. I, I don't think those two things are necessarily in conflict. I think they can both be true at the same time. So I do think it's worth pointing out just to start that we do tend to call diseases by like where they originate, right? So we've had Zika, we've had Ebola, we've had Japanese encephalitis, we've had Spanish flu, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Spanish flu uh, uh, example is wrong, but we still call it that. Oh, you're a little sensitive to that one, are you? No, I'm not sensitive to it. It's just it's like historically wrong, but I don't care. It doesn't bother me at all. And I just want to jump in, Alex. I, I want you to keep talking, but uh, I didn't know this until yesterday because I Googled it. I didn't know that Zika and Ebola were also both named for places. So Zika is a forest uh, and Ebola was a river that they looked at the wrong map and said that it was close to where the disease started. So I actually didn't know that. And I'm guessing a lot of Listeners didn't either. Sure. Like West Nile and all that. So the notion of calling a disease by sort of its origination point does not bother me on its own. We've all kind of as a world have decided to call it coronavirus. In fact, uh, my colleague Jen Kirby, uh, who's obviously been on the show, who did this great piece on Italy, like people there calling it coronavirus. I'm doing a piece on how Spain is dealing with coronavirus. They call it coronavirus, too. Like no one else is really calling it the Chinese virus. Right. So one is just we have a common parlance. And then two, as, as we've alluded to, is like why the Trump administration is doing this. And again, geopolitics are clearly a part of it. The other part of it is, I think, also just the deflection of blame that this administration has totally bungled its response from the start. And to say that somehow this is some sort of like foreign disease that is infiltrated and that the U.S. could have done really nothing about that this is almost some sort of plot in a way is insane to me. And that's what bothers me the most is that the Trump administration is not calling it the Chinese virus 
because of the convention of naming it after its origination. It's because of the racist undertones and the deflection and this geopolitical moment. So, like, Trump is now calling this, uh, he's now a wartime president, right? We're talking about this as a war, a war against an invisible enemy. And what bothers me is that it only took, like, two weeks after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor to start interning Japanese people. Um, and one could imagine, I mean, this is way out there, but, like, this, this is the groundwork that gets laid, is that the second something like this starts to happen, and we consider it a war, and we consider sort of all means necessary to defeat the enemy, you start to think, well, wait a minute. Who is responsible? And it's not hard to start making conclusions or stereotypical decisions if you start calling this thing the Chinese virus. Yesterday, John Cornyn, who's a senator from Texas, told some reporters that Chinese culture was responsible for the coronavirus because they eat bats. Uh, his phrasing was uh, extremely sweeping and dangerous, I think, in exactly the way that Alex was pointing out. However, he was trying to make a point that I think is quite defensible which is that the wet markets, that is to say markets where exotic and non-exotic animals are actually slaughtered in the market in China, are, are the most likely origination point of the coronavirus, that it likely leapt from a bat is the original theory, and a bat that was killed in a wet market to a human that consumed a bat. Wet markets are disease breeding grounds, this is what experts on China say, and medical experts who understand zootropic diseases, which is the type of disease that coronavirus is, that is to say one that jumps from animals to humans. And this is part of why China has has been such an epicenter of illness. These wet markets are, are particularly frequented by the wealthy elite in China who love to eat exotic meat. It's not a thing about Chinese culture in the way that Cornyn was describing it and this overly sweeping language you're hearing from the administration. It's troubling. It's a specific practice by a subset of the rich in China that continues despite certain and periodic attempts by the Chinese government to stamp it out. Because of an extremely powerful and influential lobby, our colleague Sam Ellis has an excellent video about this that you should check out, which I think really helps you understand the nature of the, the sort of economic, powerful, elitist nexus that allows this to continue in China. So you have to be able to point to the ways and the, and the features of the Chinese regulatory regime and state that are responsible for this disease's origination, while simultaneously saying we cannot hold this against Chinese Americans or use language that makes people of Chinese origin feel like they're being targeted. Right. A few things there. Um, and we'll link to that video in the show notes. It's really fantastic. Um, I, I definitely recommend everyone watch it. It's, it's pretty short. So a few things. One, the Trump administration is not calling this the Wuhan virus, which is what everyone called it at the beginning. That is fair because that's where it started. And that's what everyone was calling it, including the Chinese government and Chinese media. Right. Because it was in Wuhan and it was a virus. So everyone's like, I don't know that Wuhan virus when it was still early days. Everyone was calling it that. But the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, made a concerted decision to then give it an official name because they explicitly didn't want this to become something that is, you know, tarring uh, the people of Wuhan or the people of China. And our colleague Dylan Scott has a really great piece on this, on how a few years back, I guess maybe even a decade or so now, uh, the WHO and other you know, global health authorities basically came together and said, we need to figure out a better way to name these viruses so that they aren't stigmatizing either a specific animal like mad cow disease or swine flu. You may remember with swine flu, it wasn't actually related to pigs, it turned out. And it ended up in this culling uh, in Egypt of all of these this massive culling of pigs in Egypt, which just so happened to be raised by 
Coptic Christians who are a minority in Egypt uh, and caused this massive kind of problem with their economy uh, for Coptic Christians and their livelihood, but also issues of discrimination. So the WHO and other health authorities basically said, look, we need to figure out a way to do this better so that we don't have another Spanish flu that actually started, I don't know, people still don't know where, maybe in Kansas. And so they said, look, we're going to have this better naming convention. And they, they told people in advance, you know, that we, we're going to not do this anymore. We're going to come up with better names. So when they set out to name this coronavirus that people were calling the Wuhan virus, they came up with COVID-19, uh, which was coronavirus. And then it started in 2019, right? So it was basically trying to be a pretty neutral way to name the disease. Uh, and it was explicitly, again, for the reason to not stigmatize people. And I think the thing you need to look at right now is not that Trump and Pompeo and Senator Tom Cotton and other kind of China hawks, they're not calling it the Wuhan virus, right? They're not using that original name. They're calling it the Chinese virus, which is not really something that most people called it ever. I, I saw a really great tweet. They said, look, if you really want to like target the people who are responsible for bungling the initial response in China, call it the Xi Jinping disease, right? Like, you know, it was his, you know, regime, the, the Chinese Communist Party, who imprisoned, you know, the doctor who initially was like waving the red flag about this strange new virus he was seeing. Um, you know, they were the ones who are still trying to suppress numbers, suppress media reports, trying to, you know, literally spend money uh, on a, a worldwide PR propaganda campaign to make it seem like not only one, maybe it didn't start there, but two, look how great we are. And we're trying to, you know, help everybody else now. And we're actually the ones who are, are saving the world. And we're giving all this equipment to everyone. And we're the ones who are really doing a great job. Like this is a concerted effort. So I think there's a, there's a smart point in that, even if we're probably not going to actually call it the Xi Jinping disease. You know, even calling it the China virus versus the Chinese virus. Trump is calling it the Chinese virus, which it, it, to me is somehow kind of even worse because it makes it just sound like Chinese people rather than saying China as like the government. So it's very explicitly, you know, about this kind of geopolitical thing. But at this point, you know, we heard that clip earlier. There have been reporters who are saying directly to Trump's face. There are a lot of people who say this is racist. There are Chinese Americans who are you know, say they are being harassed and abused and, you know, beaten up because of this stereotype. At this point, he should know better, right? At this point, he should know, look, even if I meant to do this to target Xi Jinping and the government, it's having bad effects and I should stop. But he's not. And that's what I think really matters here. What I do wonder, though, is people in like the conservative sphere were calling it this before it got to him. Yeah. And so, like, there's a part of me that that believes he's doing it because, like, Chinese officials are trying to blame the U.S. I don't doubt that part. There's another part of me that just goes, maybe he heard it and he liked it because he likes naming things, right? I'm sure coronavirus is not like something he enjoys saying or COVID-19. I'm sure he heard China or Chinese virus and was like, that's catchier. That's better. Let's just do that. And so like the fact that now he hears something that's catchier than coronavirus and then people challenge him on it. And then someone goes, just like, well, no, of course, Chinese people would like it because that's where it's from. Like, it's just it, he's not thinking of it, I think, in those terms. I really think he's just going, this is catchy. This is marketable. Um, this will catch on. I, I don't want to psychoanalyze the president. Uh, don't feel competent to do that. I do. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that uh, for someone who has such unerringly uh, effective instincts for xenophobic scapegoating, I don't think that the guy is ignorant of the the consequences of deflecting blame onto a particular minority group, one that just so happens to vote overwhelmingly Democrat. But he's literally been told 
is my point. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. In that clip that we listened to earlier. So at this point, even if you were ignorant, there's not really an excuse now. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to uh, pivot a little bit from the naming question itself to the broader geopolitical fight between the United States and China that the naming conflict represents. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We are talking about U.S.-China competition and the coronavirus. We've been discussing the branding of the issue for the first half and how it plays into both international and domestic American politics. But now I want to talk about the bread and butter geopolitics of this, right? Because it's not just a, a nomenclature thing. It's that there is an actual competition for international influence relating to the coronavirus and the response, and, and one that, that, frankly, to my mind, despite the origins of the disease, China seems to be winning. I think that's undeniably true. I mean, I don't trust their propaganda at all, but I don't doubt that that China has a better handle on the virus or its outbreak than the United States does. Granted, they had months longer head start, but even so, after their many egregious errors at the beginning, they've really kind of come back and and we're able to sort of stem stem the crisis. It requires a lot more work. So just on the on their own front, there's that. On the global front, I mean, there's this sort of this belief happening out there that you know, in, in moments like this, this is when the American cavalry comes in. This is where the United States and its European partners and allies, or where maybe comes in, and it becomes incredibly helpful um, because not only do they have their own house in order, but then the United States comes and then just kind of offers medical equipment and all these other kinds of things because we have that capacity and, and money and resources to do. We haven't done that. We are struggling, of course, to deal with our own issue here in the United States. We have still, I mean, we're doing a surge of testing now, but it took way too long. Um, we're way behind on producing tons of equipment that we could have produced earlier on. And because we've decided to sort of pull up the drawbridge, now it's making us making it harder for us to respond elsewhere, which is, this is the vacuum that China is now starting to fill. They're going around the world, to Italy, Serbia, wherever it may be, and offering doctors, offering any kinds of support. And again, that's sort of the role that you would expect sort of the United States or Europe to play in a crisis like this. 
the Chinese or propaganda machine is basically saying, oh, we're doing this out of the kindness of our hearts. Um, that's just not true uh, for two reasons. One, they are making money off of a lot of this. Um, yep. And a lot of the help that they are uh, offering is to countries with whom they have economic relationships. We've talked about this before in China, their One Belt, One Road or their Silk Road um, economic strategy, which is basically in the broadest of terms, extending its economic influence around the country. And Italy has signed on to this. So it's no surprise that China is offering that that help. Uh, and then two is it gives China this propaganda win that look at us, we're stepping up when the United States steps back. So this is not out of the goodness of their hearts, nor would an American response necessarily be, of course. But all this to say is that like what's so jarring is that this is the sort of role you'd expect the United States and Europe to play. And the Chinese are, are, are playing at the moment and well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there was one report I saw that you know, Alex, to your point about them making money, that in some of these places, they're not just donating, they're giving like loans to people, which, you know, there will be interest and the Chinese will then hold, you know, this debt for these countries. And so they're not necessarily just going around out of the goodness of their hearts. And again, I, you know, I think it's a really good point you made, Alex. It's not like we necessarily do that ourselves either, you know, the, only out of the goodness of our hearts. But I think it's really important to see, you know, how we did an episode on this last week on the show. It was called Every Country for Itself. And it really feels like that has come to define a lot of the U.S. response now. You know, Zach, you were talking about how essentially we're just trying to deal with our own crisis and not, you know, caring about anyone else in the way that the U.S. normally would. It's important to look at the, the full Chinese propaganda machine, right? They're also talking about their billionaires. So Jack Ma, the Chinese billionaire, the Chinese state media was pushing out this whole thing about him, you know, saying that he was donating, you know, a bunch of money and, and supplies or whatever. And it was this like, look at these, you know, Chinese billionaires who are, you know, philanthropic and, and you know, pushing this again, not that they're not being philanthropic, not that Jack Ma doing this is not a good thing. It is. But if this were to happen in the U.S. and say, you know, I don't know, Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Bill Gates, like putting, you know, billions of dollars into this, like that's good. But the Chinese state media is then picking it up and running this as part of this broader propaganda machine rather than like it just being this one off thing that this person did. I saw this uh, this tweet from The Global Times, again, that Chinese English language Chinese paper yesterday on Wednesday night. And it was really fascinating to me because the, the competition between the U.S. and China over who gets like, you know, to be the good guys in this global response is even extending into the vaccines. So this tweet said um, it was talking about this peptide manufacturing company in Shanghai in China that's trying to develop this element that's used in the vaccine, whatever. It's complicated. But at the end, it says, guess who will win the global coronavirus vaccine battle, China or the U.S.? Like they're explicitly framing this as a battle between China and the United States over who gets the vaccine first. Now, in one sense, that's great because competition, you know, even if it's, you know, national competition, nationalism, like hopefully, ideally, that'll make people be like, yeah, we want to be the first, right? Think about like the space race between the US and the Soviets, right? Who gets to be in space first? It actually ended up in a lot of ways leading to really good, smart technological developments because everyone was trying to develop really smart things for the other ones. On the bad side, framing this as a competition, especially between the two, you know, largest global economies, two very strong militaries, is a little bit scary more broadly, you know, because having this as a literal battle, as a conflict, rather than thinking of it as coming together, let's all work together, which is the kind of sentiment that everyone's really hoping the world does right now. Like, we all literally have to work together for this to work. 
and for us to, you know, come out of this somewhat unscathed. It's a little bit scary to see them explicitly framing it as this battle, especially when you hear, you know, on the other side, the Trump administration calling it a war. I'm not wild about that framing. And it was really interesting to see that. It was really stark. One thing I think that's that's very striking in this conversation is we've been talking about it and, you know, in this competition language, the same language the Chinese state media is is using, I think, right. from their perspective correctly. Uh, but if, if, if this is a game, the U.S. isn't really playing, right? The Trump administration has been so focused on the American response, I think, for two reasons. First, initially, they spent the first few months, weeks downplaying it and ignoring it. And then all of a sudden it became an undeniable crisis. And now they've needed to scramble to try to make up for all the time they've lost, which is impossible. The U.S. is in a very bad situation significantly because the administration decided to say this is not a real problem for a while. Second, and I think importantly, this administration has an ideological understanding of what its role is that makes it not suited for this particular kind of geopolitical competition right here. This administration, you meaning the Trump administration or are you talking about Beijing? The Trump administration. Got it. America first as a doctrine has has been employed in their view to de-emphasize things like foreign aid, right? Ways of leveraging American influence through assistance, not through like providing a loan and then getting money back on it. That's something the Trump administration is happy to do if they make more money. It's this idea that you can gain influence by doing things that that help other countries directly. That something that seems like an altruistic action is also part of what helps maintain America's global influence. The denial of that logic and the emphasis of zero-sum competition has been a key part of administration doctrine since day one. The problem is, in the event of a disease, the perception of American influence, power, etc., all stems from its ability to do things that seem like it's not just the U.S. being out for itself, but rather donating excess capacity, uh, helping with disease infrastructure in other countries like we did in the Ebola crisis and the Obama administration. You know, it, it's exercising global leadership for the good of, of every country since we're all in it together against the coronavirus. That's just not how this administration thinks. And it means that the Chinese understand this kind of influence. That's why they're doing all the stuff in Serbia and Italy, for example. And it's really striking how, how much play that's getting in the Serbian government, the Italian government, and popular society. And that's that's very smart as a tactic for leveraging future influence. It's just not a, a vehicle, a realm of power competition. There's one other thing that I think we've missed uh, talking about that I actually want to hear Alex a bit on because he did a really amazing reported piece. I don't know now, maybe a year ago. I have no concept of time. But, you know, when we talk about the Trump administration and geopolitics versus China, you know, you have to think about the trade war. And, you know, there's the, the very real fact that a lot of the supply chain of, you know, products that end up being sold in the United States a lot of the supply chain so that, you know, parts of factories that make little pieces of the final product are in China. And as Alex reported in this piece, you know, the Trump administration and particularly certain hawks within the administration um, and including Steve Bannon, who's no longer in the administration, but is still really close to the you know, Trump people um, are very hawkish on the Chinese supply chain and are really trying to essentially push China out of the global supply chain and try to convince factories to, you know, move elsewhere so that we're not so reliant on China. And if you look at it in that perspective, you know, calling this the Chinese virus and, you know, playing up the fact that this is going to potentially keep happening in China because of things like the wet market, like you talked about earlier, Zach, 
you know, that that China is the the source of these viruses, that China is unstable, that China can't handle this is potentially helpful in economic terms. If, you know, if you're trying to convince companies that they should abandon China, calling this the Chinese virus and blaming them, you know, may make companies think, hey, if this is going to keep happening and China's not going to be able to handle it, maybe we should diversify and at least just not have all of our factories in China. Um, Alex, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I mean, it's still disastrous, though, to to play this up. A lot of this medical equipment does come from China. So the fact that we have this trade war going has actually made it harder for us to get a lot of the equipment that we might need, masks, gloves, bed linens, whatever it may be. A lot of that is made in China, and the trade war has made it harder to bring. Also, this notion that the U.S. can go it alone. I mean, we've had uh, other countries offer us uh, tests and equipment, and we've n- said no. And I think the notion is, well, why wouldn't we just make it in America? Um, and that sort of thinking that dominates the Trump administration has been disastrous and has hurt uh, our responsiveness here. Uh, and the notion that, like, we of course need at a time where the global economy is going to take a hit, the U.S. and China having a decent economic relationship, uh, despite all its many faults and problems. Uh, is actually incredibly important to global stability. And the fact that the Trump administration is still on a warring foot on this front, to me, is insane at such a precarious moment that we're in. And then one side point, but I do not want to let it go. I know we're talking about the U.S. and China, but where is the European Union? It is insane to me that that organization has not stepped up at a time where it absolutely needs to. Europe is now the epicenter of this crisis. Italy is dying. Spain is dying. France is dying. UK is dying. I mean, I know they're out, but still. It is nuts at this moment. I mean, you had Merkel, the, the chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, basically say this is like the greatest challenge to Germany since World War II. What are they doing? They're doing nothing. They're letting China take the lead. They are providing absolutely no help. This is why countries in Europe are like this notion of European solidarity that we've been talking about for decades just doesn't exist. This is the biggest challenge to that supranational entity in years, if not ever. And it is absolutely failing in that in that motion. And so, like, there's also a part of me that that absolves the U.S. of blame here, because if you're looking at the EU and you're thinking, well, they're not doing anything, we absolutely need them for their support in this. Like, why would we use them? I guess we're we're alone, too. There's a book on the 2008 financial crisis called The System Worked by Tufts political scientist Dan Dresner. Dan makes this really compelling argument in the book that the global financial architecture put together by the United States, primarily, but with European buy-in, was really nimble and effective in dealing with the consequences of the housing market collapse, financial crisis, and putting together an effective international response that staved off a repeat of the Great Depression, which was possible, maybe even likely, in the absence of a coordinated international policy response. So that's why the system worked. But Alex, as you're pointing out here, the system is not working for coronavirus in the way that it's supposed to. Dan actually had a piece on this this week uh, in The Washington Post, where he regularly writes, um, arguing that, in fact, this is a really bad sign for the effectiveness of the international system. There's very little international cooperation through the ordinary mechanisms in like little, not in the sense of like there's nothing happening, but in the sense of what you need relative to the scale of the crisis. We're just not seeing especially the traditional big powers, the United States and Europe, step up. And so you have a situation where not only is China filling in some of these gaps in certain countries, but Jen, to the Jack Ma point you were making earlier, he's donating supplies to the United States. I'm not saying, no, I don't want your help, Jack Ma. Like, screw you, you're Chinese. But rather the fact that China needs to be donating stuff to the United States and gets to say, 
our rich people are helping the benighted Americans is about as clear a sign of power transition and of China throwing its influence around as, as perhaps I've seen in global politics recently. It is insane to me that the United States just recently flew in 500,000 testing kits from Italy. Like, that's how bad it is, right? <laughs> Italy's the one going through crisis, and we had to take in these things from that country just to, for our own response. Like, that's how far behind we are. And it's no surprise then, of course, the Chinese are taking advantage. Yeah, you know, Zach, I think your point about the system, uh, you know, the system in 2008, the financial system having essentially, you know, worked, although there were, there were a lot of losers out of that crisis. So, you right. know, I, I think globally, right, yes, the system worked. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that financial markets and, you know, globalization, uh, you know, have really become interconnected and intertwined in a very specific way and in a way that the U.S. and to some degree Europe designed it to make sure that this infrastructure existed and that the U.S. had a lot of control over it and the ways that it operated. Whereas, you know, when it comes to the health systems, right, those are still pretty, you know, uh, national. The healthcare, you know, and, and supplies and the, you know, pharmaceutical industry is very globalized in the sense that we get a lot of our medications um, using, you know, parts, uh, not parts, but using, um, you know, materials and chemicals that are made all over the world in India, in Ireland and China and elsewhere. Um, but the actual like provision of healthcare is still at a very national level in a way that financial markets being integrated, it, it's not the same. And so we actually don't have that global infrastructure. And this is something that a lot of, you know, experts and I know even Alex has been very worried about and people have been warning like, Look, this is a problem. If we face a pandemic, we don't have the infrastructure in place. Yes, we have the WHO and other health organizations um, that are kind of on the supranational level, but they're not necessarily empowered to like do things in the way that like the WTO, the World Trade Organization is, right? Or UN type bodies. Like there's no real, um, you know, I'm not arguing for one world government, just so we're clear. And I'm not saying that's necessarily like a, a bad thing in general. It just kind of makes sense that healthcare is handled on a pretty much national level because that's just how our world is operated. But because of that, because these systems are less integrated, we have this breakdown where essentially, you know, not necessarily because we even want to, but we do have to suddenly focus on here in our country, what is our health system doing for our people? Because treating people across, you know, country lines. The EU has a little bit better here because do doctors can, you know, operate across borders with, you know, different licenses that say they're allowed to operate in other EU countries, which is one of the issues with Brexit. But, you know, even in the U.S., like just this week, the Trump administration had to announce that doctors would be allowed to operate and practice medicine across U.S. state lines. Like that's how localized our healthcare systems are. So we actually don't have that broader infrastructure that it enables us to coordinate really well, even across state lines, let alone across national borders around the world. So I, I think that's where we're going to leave you today. I want to, first of all, encourage all of you to stay safe and stay sane and happy during this. Do what you can, not only to preserve your own health, physical health from the coronavirus, but also your mental health from the isolation. Those of you who, like us, are on lockdown. I also want to thank our producers, Kyle Murdoch and Bird Pinkerton, for helping us get this done through our weird home audio system. Any problems, like me popping a lot of peas, are all my fault and not theirs. Thanks so much, and we will talk to you all next week. <laughs>